This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. David Granite, and welcome to Health Matters. Sometimes we talk about medical disease on the show. Sometimes you talk about injuries. Sometimes you talk about normal medical processes. Some of those affect a few people. What we're going to talk about today affects everyone. Everyone listening sleeps. All of you sleep. And I dare say many have had a problem with their sleep. And it turns out, according to the Centers for Disease Control down in Atlanta, there's a huge epidemic of people who have problems with their sleeping. Does it matter? Does it matter if you don't get enough sleep? Aren't you just more productive? What does it do to your body? What does it do to your thinking? What does it do to your functioning? Well, we have an expert with us today to help us through that topic. Dr. Sean Drummond, welcome. Thank you. Um, and, and as my mother would say, you're a real doctor. <laughs> uh, and, and Dr. Drummond is uh, an associate professor at UCSD and director of the Behavioral and Sleep Medicine Program. Uh, you run a lab in the same field yep. uh, and uh, really an expert. I, when I was reading to get ready for the show, I saw that, that you've been interested in sleep since an undergraduate yeah. you know, days, which I laughed about because I'm thinking every undergraduate's interested in sleeping <laughs> somehow or another, right? Um, and, and, and so what it, it, an interesting topic to me because I'm convinced I don't get enough sleep and, and, I, and I'm certain I look at my kids that somehow we're messing with their sleep. And I'm really excited to talk about that. What is sleep? I mean, what is it that all of a sudden our brains, our bodies turn off in some way? We close our eyes and, and we're in someplace else. Yeah, yeah. That, that's an interesting question because sleep sleep's actually not one thing. Uh, sleep is actually two different states of consciousness. Um, and there is one of the states of consciousness, which lots of people have heard about, which is called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. This is a stage of sleep where we do most of our dreaming. Um, and then there's the second stage of consciousness within sleep, which is called non-REM sleep. And that's more of um, kind of the early transition stages when you're just falling asleep. And then that really deep, I'm sleeping like a log sort of sleep. And uh, the brain has very different levels of activity in each of those. So in non-REM sleep, the brain is very inactive. In REM sleep, not surprisingly, given that we dream there, the brain actually reactivates and becomes very active, just like it is in the waking state. So w- why are we sleeping? Our, our, our hearts still beat. We still breathe. Our brains are active a good chunk of the time. What's the value of sleep? Why, why are we built that for a certain chunk of the day, we close our eyes and we go to sleep? That's a really good question. And I think one of the mysteries of sleep, and one of the things I love about studying it is we still don't actually know what all of the functions of sleep are. We certainly know a number of them. There are a lot of restoration functions that occur in the brain and in the body uh, when we sleep. Certainly we need sleep in order to have optimal cognitive performance, to be able to think and do things during the day. There's very, very good data showing that memory is enhanced by sleep and that long-term memory um, benefits from, if not explicitly needs, restful sleep periods in order to, to store things in long-term memory. And then there's lots of medical reasons. So the sleep interacts with the endocrine system in order to help regulate weight, for example, and um, fight off things like diabetes. So I, we're going to get into that in depth. Sure. Um, something like 25% of the United States population doesn't get enough sleep. And um, I had to look up what enough sleep is because 
you know, since medical school, I, I, I'm certain I've not gotten enough <laughs> sleep. And and the, some of the estimates I saw when you're when you're you're a young elementary school kid, it's ten or eleven hours of sleep. Teenagers, at least nine hours of sleep. Adults, seven to nine hours of sleep. That means if you go to sleep after Jay Leno is over at uh, twelve thirty at night, and you're supposed to get eight hours of sleep, you should be getting up at eight thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I don't think that's what most people do. No, no. I mean, the reports are that most people get closer to six and a half or seven to seven and a half hours of sleep. And certainly for sort of the average adult, the epidemiological data shows very clearly that anything under about seven, anything above about 10 leads to long-term health consequences. Uh, so you're right. Lots of the population isn't in that sweet spot that we need to be in. Yeah. And I mean, I know my son, when he was in high school, gave me that pitch over and over that he needed more sleep. And it was ridiculous that they made him get up so early to go to school. And now I'm starting to see data that probably high school is starting too early. Absolutely it is. Absolutely. And, and with teenagers, it's not just the hours of sleep, but it's the timing of their sleep. When you're a teenager, the body, the brain wants to go to bed much later than when you're an adult. So one, two, three in the morning and wants to wake up much later. The biological night is literally at a different time on the clock than when you're an adult. So it really is shifted. Yeah, exactly. And, and you can't just force the shift back. Not easily. Uh, it did, not didn't easily. work in my house, I can tell you that. <laughs> so so the, 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 the kids might be right, is that we're, we're blowing it uh, on uh, what, how we built school, high school for them. Mm-hmm. And starting classes at 7.30 is ridiculous that we should start later mm-hmm. to allow them to get to sleep. We have physiologic information that we're ignoring, essentially. Yeah. yeah, and there's a few school districts around the country that have experimented with this, and they've shown that if high schools start later, Grades go up, particularly in the first couple classes of the day. Behavioral problems go down, particularly early in the day. So, yeah, there's very good data to suggest the whole system get, should get changed. And, you know, I mean, it's sort of political, probably impossibility to do it. But biologically, it would be the thing to do. Yeah. Sports practice would get harder if it started later in the day. It I mean, would. There are other issues. It would. Um, so we, we've gotten an idea of why we sleep. There's some regeneration that goes on. The brain seems to want to do have some fun, at least while during its REM sleep. It's working all day. It gets its rest. It's fun. Um, what are the things that, that go wrong? And, and I, I, I have some in my list, but we have different words from sleep disorder to insomnia to narcolepsy to I'm tired. How do you define it as a sleep expert to what we call the different things that are when sleep is going wrong? Sleep goes wrong, yeah. So um, it's actually fascinating when sleep goes wrong. And I think there's a couple big classes of sleep disorders, if you will. Um, And one of the big classes is insomnia. And insomnia essentially is when you either can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep, or you wake up too early and can't fall back to sleep. Um, And that that poor sleep at night has some direct impact during the day so that it messes with you somehow during the day. That's insomnia. Um, And what do I mean by can't fall asleep, can't stay asleep, wake up too early? We use a rule of uh, thumb of 30 minutes. So if it's more than half an hour to fall asleep on a regular basis, more than 30 minutes awake in the middle of the night, more than 30 minutes before your alarm clock goes off, that's insomnia. Um, Another big class and probably the um, most commonly undiagnosed sleep disorder is something called obstructive sleep apnea, which is where 
um, people stop breathing at night. The airway closes down, makes it impossible to get air down into the lungs, and people stop breathing. Uh, and this is usually associated with really loud snoring and then a pause in the snoring when the person isn't breathing, and then they wake up gasping for air, uh, start breathing again, fall back asleep, and the whole process starts over again. That's almost um, uh, comical on movies or TVs, yeah. the loud snorer, and then wakes up. But that's really a medical issue. Yes, that's a significant problem. So, so untreated sleep apnea, which generally is a very chronic disease, is very bad because not only does it fragment your sleep, every time you stop breathing, you have to wake up to start breathing again. But also, if you're not breathing, you're not getting oxygen. And not getting oxygen clearly is very bad for our heart, for our lungs, for our brain, for basically everywhere in our body. Uh, puts us at risk for strokes and puts us at risk for heart attacks, even, even more minor things like headaches. So, so it's, it's bad. While we're on that topic, specifically of sleep, sleep apnea, sure. mm-hmm. how does the person who's asleep know that that's happening? <laughs> often they don't. We often have the bed partner bring the person in uh, and say, fix them, there's something wrong. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, the, the patient, the, the person with sleep apnea would know if they consistently wake up feeling like they're short of breath, gasping for air. Sometimes people even hear themselves wake up snoring. Things like that can be a clue. And usually when you're waking yourself up, it's gotten to the point where it's pretty bad. There's no app that you can put on your phone that, that listens to you. You know, there probably is, but <laughs> I don't know it. <laughs> um, and and uh, uh, as we go forward, uh, there was one other I encountered that sometimes I think I have it because I have bad knees, I don't know, but restless leg syndrome. Uh-huh. You know, I, I, you go to lie down and you, you don't get comfortable. It's more than you just don't get comfortable. So, you know, back pain, something like that can make you not comfortable. Restless leg syndrome, which kind of happens when you're awake, and then it's, it's cousin periodic limb movements, which happens at, at night, essentially as you lie down and you get this restless, creepy, crawly, um, kind of achy feeling in your legs, and it won't go away unless you move them. And when you move them, it kind of goes away, but then as soon as you relax again, it comes back. So that's really what restless legs is. And that's going to keep you awake, obviously. And that's going to keep you awake, yeah. Um, I, there's this, I feel like we're getting towards a final common pathway here of all of these lead to you're not getting enough sleep. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so, you yeah. know, it's, and, and then there are those people like me who find themselves waking up to go to sleep. So I fall asleep on the couch downstairs, and my wife wakes me up so I can get upstairs, go, go upstairs. So I have to get up to go to sleep. Uh-huh. Um, and, and so, which I'm sure means, again, I'm not getting enough sleep. But the, the, so final common pathway is sleep apnea, insomnia, the way you described it, restless legs. Um, all those people are not getting an adequate sleep. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then... Um, that's at night, they wake up, they're tired. What does that do to them all day long? Well, I think you, you sort of described at least the major symptom, uh, the most common symptom really well, which is you're sleepy all day long, right? And so you're more likely to fall asleep when you shouldn't be, you know, be it on the couch while you're watching TV or when you're at a meeting or at a downtime at work or maybe even driving, which actually happens um, and is pretty frightening. So that the excessive sleepiness during the day is, is one of the most noticeable consequences. I think the other things that we commonly hear people talk about are um, – cognitive problems. So problems sort of thinking through and doing things. And sometimes this is very specific and people say, well, my memory is really bad or my concentration is really bad. And sometimes it's just, wow, it was so much harder to get through work or school today because it's like 
I'm in a fog and I'm, my brain is walking through mud. But we, but we have figured out a way to self-treat it. It's become a multi-gazillion dollar business with caffeine. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, there's ironically, one on every corner, right? Yeah, and ironically, caffeine can actually make your sleep problem at night worse. And so That's you sort what of get into it. this little cycle. Um, and so one thing people don't often know is that caffeine can affect your sleep for 8 to 10 hours after you drink it, which is long after you feel like it's affecting you, right? That so, cup of coffee after dinner? Very likely to affect your sleep. And so there, there's that cycle, right? I'm tired. I want to get some work done at night. I have a cup of coffee at the end of dinner because I'm going to do some work. And, and then I'm tired again because I didn't get enough sleep because the caffeine affected my sleep cycle. That's right. Right. And, and how do you break that? Um, it's tough. I mean, you break it really by weaning yourself back off of the caffeine, um, which then allows you to get better sleep at night which then makes you less likely to need caffeine the next day. And, of course, all of this doesn't happen in one night. So there's usually some painful nights when you're um, you know, either fighting through sleepiness because you're not using the caffeine or not sleeping as well as you're sort of building your sleep pattern back up. Um, but the, the long-term cycle, basically, and, and to, for example, to treat insomnia, is to um, completely change the overall sleep-wake behaviors in ways that are much more consistent with getting good, consistent sleep. And, and uh, that's, that's the, the, the payoff here in this conversation. But I want to make sure people really do understand the seriousness of this before we get there. Sure. Um, I came across some information that blew my mind. Staying up or not, not getting good sleep for 18 hours is like having several drinks. And if you haven't slept for 21 to 24 hours on the CDC website, they say, that's like being drunk. Yeah, that if you're trying to drive, your performance is the equivalent to a drunk driver. Yes. And I'm just thinking about somebody with lack of sleep trying to perform in life, whatever it is, and performing as if they were flat out legally drunk. Mm-hmm. That's an astonishing idea that, the, that, that you put your brain in that position. Yeah. What I like about that comparison is everybody understands blood alcohol content. Everybody knows that it's bad to try to do things when you're drunk, particularly drive. And to say something like, if you've been awake for 18 hours, which means you're getting six hours of sleep at night, you're awake for 18 hours, you're driving as if your blood alcohol is 0.05. And when you're awake 21 to 24, you're driving as as if your blood alcohol is 0.08 to 0.1. That should mean something to people, and and you know because being up eighteen hours is pretty normal. I mean, you know, six hours of sleep is it happens exactly. Driving home from uh, somebody seeing a friend or whatever, you get ready. You know, it's ten or eleven o'clock at night. Uh, you're driving as if you've had a couple of drinks, even if you've had nothing. That's right. That's right. And what that means, driving as if you've had a couple of drinks, specifically is you haven't. People swerve in their lanes the same extent as if they were drunk, and people can't stay in the center of their lane. Um, the same way you can't as if you're drunk. And so those are pretty, those are pretty dangerous driving that's, habits. That's real. Yeah. And, um, and you, you mentioned these, so I want to cycle back to it. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, all affected by poor sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and actually, this is one of the really uh, exciting areas in the last five, six, seven years in, in the sleep field is our understanding of the interaction between sleep and the endocrine system has really grown substantially. So so in a nutshell, what happens is when you get insufficient sleep, um, two things happen. One, our body starts to process insulin and glucose differently. So that if you, in the, in the studies that they did, when they had people, they only gave them four hours in bed a night for, I think it was six nights, they turned them insulin resistant. So they essentially turned them into diabetics from one week of really bad sleep. Wow. 
Wow. Uh, I, you know, as someone, I fly places, I, I give lectures, I come back. There's, there's, there's plenty of times where I'm only getting a few hours of sleep here and there. Uh, that's, a, that's scary. It is. And, <laughs> that, I mean, that's, the good news is it reversed when they started sleeping again. Um, and, and the other piece I think that, that's important for people to know about is, is getting too little sleep in this sort of way that we're talking about also affects the, the peptides that tell us whether we're hungry or we're full. So there's a peptide called ghrelin that tells us that we're hungry. And there's another peptide called leptin that tells us when we're full. When we haven't had enough sleep, the amount of ghrelin that we, our brain secretes goes up. The amount of leptin goes down. So we get more signals that we're hungry, fewer signals that we're full, and the food we crave is high-fat, high-carb, sugar, junk food, basically. So the potato chips and ice cream I eat just before I go to sleep is, okay, It's not your fault. It's <laughs> yes, not your, that's what I'm saying. Thank God I can tell my <laughs> wife that now. Um, okay, um, and, and depression. That, you know, it's, it's not the medical problem, but it's a medical problem. And, yep. and, I mean, added to by lack of sleep. Yeah, and not just depression. So, so but we can start there. So um, having... Uh, insomnia actually puts people at risk for developing depression, even if they've never had depression before in their lives. Um, And if somebody has had depression and say they've been treated and now they're doing fine, a new bout of insomnia puts you at risk for developing more depression and new bouts of depression down the road. And the same is true for other anxiety disorders. The same is true for post-traumatic stress disorder. Lots of mental health problems interact with sleep so that they make each other worse. And, and you do a lot of your work at the Veterans Hospital. Yes. I would think that post-traumatic stress disorder, sleep, and those issues come up all the time. All the time. Something like 90% of patients with post-traumatic stress disorder have insomnia and or chronic nightmares. And so whatever it is, it's disrupting their sleep pretty badly. Um, we've set the stage. This is a big deal. I want to run through some myth or fact type questions and then talk to you about how we're going to help these people who are trouble sleeping and what, what sure. we can give in general. So myth or fact. Getting early to bed makes a whole difference. So if you just got into bed at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, it would all be okay. Myth. Myth. Okay. Um, and we'll talk about why in a minute. Um, you can catch up on your sleep. That's okay. You know, on Saturday and Sunday, you'll catch up on your sleep. Mostly myth. <laughs> good. <laughs> can I say uh, that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, if you take a nap in the middle of the day, that'll make up for it, not getting a good sleep at night. Uh, myth. Okay. Uh, a drink at night, um, it'll help you go to sleep. It will, but it will just disrupt your sleep later in the night. So, good or bad? Uh, in the end, bad. And bad. Okay, <laughs> got it. <laughs> All right. So now, um, we got somebody who's got insomnia. Let's take sort of routine, more typical stuff. Um, there's a word I came across in preparing for the show: perpetuators. Uh-huh. Things that perpetuate bad sleep. I loved it. I thought that was because it really explained what perpetuates the problem. W- what are those things that? That, that someone can do to figure out what their perpetuators are and then start changing them. Okay, so um, you're right, because this is actually key to, to fixing an insomnia problem. So there's really like four different kinds of things that perpetuate sleep problems. One of them are things that people do to try to get extra sleep at night when they know they're not sleeping well. So this could be going to bed early, like you suggested. This could be sleeping in uh, the next morning. This could be drinking alcohol to try to help yourself sleep. So things you do to try to see, maybe I'll get some extra sleep tonight. The second kind are things that you do during the day to make up for the fact that you had a bad night of sleep last night. So this would be take a nap. This would be drink caffeine, things like that. Um, The third type of perpetuating factor are things that you do in bed when you're not sleeping. 
generally it's at time when you would rather be sleeping, but it doesn't even have to be. So generally things you do in bed when you're not sleeping, this could be read, watch TV, uh, play on the computer or the iPad. Uh, for a lot of people with sleep problems, it's stress. They really worry, problem solve, ruminate, that sort of stuff in bed. And then the fourth type of perpetuating factor is untreated medical or psychological problems that disrupt your sleep. And the big problem with all of these things is they lead to a condition where you are in bed and you're awake. And so what happens is you start pairing together, I'm in bed, I'm awake. I'm in bed, I'm awake. I'm in bed, I'm awake. And pretty soon your brain learns that the bed is a place to be awake, not a place to be asleep. Ah. And this is now what has created something called conditioned arousal, which steamrolls the insomnia and really keeps it going. You want to be conditioned, like I think most people know the Pavlovian bell rings, the dog's saliva. That's exactly right. You want to be conditioned when you get into bed, you go to sleep. Right. And with insomnia, the condition is usually 180 degrees from that. They get into bed and they're wide awake worrying. That doesn't work. It doesn't. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> um, just because we're in the modern era, you know, I can I go to bed, I'm going to check my email before I go to sleep. That screen, there's something about the screen, the, the, the almost addictive technology, then you, you're awake a little bit longer. Is it stimulatory? Is it the wrong, I mean, really the wrong thing to be doing when you get into bed, pull out your laptop or a game? Yes, it is the wrong thing to do for several reasons. One, the cardinal rule of good, healthy sleep is do nothing in bed but sleep. Got it. So you shouldn't be doing anything else in bed, including playing games, computer, cell phones, whatever. Now, it can still be a problem if you're in the other room and you check your email and then you go brush your teeth, try to get right in bed. And it, the issue isn't settled scientifically, I don't believe, about whether the light from the screen is in and of itself disruptive of sleep. But what can be is you check that work email and you're like, oh, really? And then your mind starts to roll, and that is going to make it much harder for you. And I'm picturing sleep. people with a phone, and they're texting a friend or doing something just before they go to sleep. And put the phone down and try and go to sleep. I mean, that, yeah, they, you, you really want a wind-down period before you go to bed. And, and that wind-down period can, can look very different for different people, but it should be unplugging from electronics, not engaging in things that you know are stimulating or stressful. Uh, so somebody it might be reading, somebody it might be watching TV, somebody it might be chatting with family members, whatever it is, but it needs to be relaxing. If I turn on the TV right now, probably there's an ad for some drug to help you sleep. <laughs> um, there's a categories, different categories of drugs that help you sleep. I use melatonin when I travel for jet lag because mm -hmm. I... I, I, it helps me get through. Yep. So are, are there medications that in general make sense to use or you need to be doing this kind of um, non-medicated uh, evaluation of what's going on with your sleep first and, and fix that rather than trying to fix it by keeping everything else the same and throwing a pill at it? Sleep medications are useful for very short-term acute effects of I know I have a big interview tomorrow and I have to get some sleep or I just got back into town and I'm kind of jet lagged and I just need to get over the hump, something like that. They're not meant for chronic sleep problems. And by chronic, I mean maybe for three months. Are, are people using them that way? Absolutely people use them that way. But it's it, the frontline treatment and even the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, which is the the major clinical sleep organization in, in North America says that the behavioral interventions for sleep are the frontline treatments, not the medications. So just all the behavioral stuff that we were just talking about. Mm -hmm. uh, somebody's listening at home and they're having insomnia. They're struggling a little bit. They don't know if they have sleep apnea. 
They don't know um, if uh, there's something else wrong. They don't know if it's affecting maybe their diabetes or, or even if they don't have health problems, they're having trouble losing weight. Where should they start? I mean, they've listened to our show. That's great. Should they start by trying to keep a sleep diary? Should they start by going to their internist? Do they go to you and, and find a laboratory somewhere that does sleep research and studies this? Where do they start? Gosh, that's a really good question. And I think um, there are a number of useful websites to get even more information than what we've talked about here. Um, and the National, Science, the National Sleep Foundation is a very good website, for example, that, that can do that. But really, I think that if someone is struggling, feels like they have really bad sleep, it's impacting them during the day, but they don't really know what's wrong with their sleep, it can help to go to um, a sleep clinic and talk with a specialist there. Uh, and get a really thorough evaluation. It may or may not involve spending the night in the sleep lab. It may simply be an interview, filling out some sleep diaries at home, learning more about what's going on. So I think if it's difficult for someone to identify the source of their problem, that's a good way to go. Um, in the short time that we have left, I'm just wondering if, if we made the, the world according to Drummond and you got to, you know, you got to control things, where would you like to see things now and then going forward and and or predict? I mean, where are things going to go? What are we going to learn? And where's this whole world over the next several years going to go? So I think I would like to to make sleep health much more in the public consciousness. I think it's something that, that has not really been out there. People sacrifice sleep for productivity. It's a false sacrifice. And that type of education is something that I would like to see get spread out more. And then simply increasing access to good sleep clinical services so that when people do have sleep problems, they can get their sleep problems better. Um, and that's just a matter of training more people to do it, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I, while you've been talking and thinking about the work that you do with the veterans, I, I was trying to picture somebody deployed uh, either on a ship or on the ground and it's a war zone how on earth they could ever get proper sleep, the stress and anxiety that they're under, the caffeine, the cigarettes, the, you know, all the stuff, the stimulants. Yeah. I, I can't, it's astonishing that somebody comes out of that okay. Uh, just, just, that's the ultimate in the, the wrong sleep habits. It, it absolutely is, and we see, we see that every single day at the VA, that that's what started somebody's sleep problems, and now they can't get them fixed. Until they come see us. Yeah, I, I was uh, talking to a friend of mine whose um, husband is in uh, Navy SEALs. And uh, he had to wear a special sleep mask over his eyes because, I mean, he, he, it was to transition back to civilian life was mm -hmm. brutal. Mm -hmm. uh, and these are the people that we're counting on to do so much for their service that I'm so glad that you're there studying all this and trying to figure out how to, how to make it better and how to help. Thank you. Um, and thank you for educating our, our listeners today because... I'm tired and I, I, you know, I'm listening to you going, God, I got to do a better job. And I think a lot of people are going to hear that and, and realize the same thing uh, and that uh, the, the behavioral things that we can do to make a difference for ourselves. And sometimes when you need more help, it's okay to ask for it. Absolutely. And there's things to do. Thank you so much for, for your time today. Thank you. It's my honor. We've been uh, chatting with Dr. Sean Drummond, uh, a sleep expert who does research in this field and, as you heard, uh, really has a very good approach to understanding what's going on when we have trouble sleeping. A good chunk of you have insomnia or have sleep difficulty. Some of this is self-induced. And as you heard, it's a, it's a false sense that you're going to become more productive or things are going to get better if you don't sleep, if you just steal an extra hour from the night. But, but that's not what happens. And it's a little scary to think about 
how driving after 18 to 24 hours is a lot like having several drinks. So this is a real problem. It affects your health. It affects your mental health. It affects your productivity. It affects your memory. It affects your thinking. It affects all of it. So take it seriously. And if you don't just keep pushing yourself, if you're having a problem, ask for help. There are centers and there are people you can go to. I'm Dr. David Granite. Remember, knowledge is power. That's what we say every episode right here on Health Matters. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.